they get like an eviction notice. You have to leave by this date or we're going to demolish your house. And so Palestinians are forced to leave their homes so that they don't get demolished with their homes. That was the case before 1948, during 1948, and even now. I'm Jesse Mazzoni. This is History Untold. Each episode, our guests from around the world share parts of history that are often unknown or misunderstood. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Aya, who is Palestinian, to discuss al-Nakba, or the catastrophe. Before we begin, I want to preface our conversation with two reminders that hold true for historical topics in all of my podcast episodes, but are particularly important for dialogue related to Israel and Palestine. First, my podcast does not illustrate every stakeholder's perspective of a historical moment, but instead is meant to focus on the perspective of the episode's guest. As such, my guest today will be sharing only the Palestinian perspective on al-Nakba. In the future, I would love to host episodes sharing multiple perspectives on one topic, so if you would like to speak to another perspective on al-Nakba or any other topic, please reach out to me. Second, in all History Untold episodes, my guest and I regularly discuss governments, militaries, and political organizations. Please keep in mind that these groups never represent 100% of the people of a given nationality, race, cultural identity, or religion. To be more specific, in this episode, when we refer to Israel and Israeli political groups, we are never stating that these groups represent the will of all Israeli people, and they certainly do not represent the will of all Jewish people. Again, to be clear, Statements about Israeli political groups and Israel in this episode are not statements about Jewish people. These two groups are not one in the same. Given the fact that many Jewish communities globally face discrimination based on attitudes towards Israel, my guest and I want to be completely clear that we reject any and all hateful or discriminatory words or actions against Jewish people. As in every episode, there is no single perspective or story that encompasses the whole truth. So if you hear something that doesn't sound right, or you disagree with something that Aya or myself says, please let us know. You can email us at historyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. Today I have Aya Salema joining me. She's going to share a critical moment in Palestinian history which took place in 1948 called Al-Nakba. Before we begin, Aya, I would love it if you could share a little bit about yourself and why you chose to share this important moment in Palestinian history. Okay, hi, I'm Aya and I'm a Jordanian Palestinian. I've lived in Qatar most of my life but I have a lot of Palestinian family that still reside in Palestine and a lot that still reside in Jordan. And my family has had a lot of experiences that have have been a result of a Nakba and a Nexa, which is an event that took place after a Nakba. I guess like for me, keeping track of that history is just really important to my identity because I haven't had the chance to actually live in Palestine for many reasons, uh, mostly political. And so keeping track of 
of the history, making sure that I'm aware of everything that's happening up to date is just an important part of who I am. And you started Carnegie Mellon's first Palestinian group. Is that right? Could you tell me more about that? Yeah. So over the past year, there have been a lot of events that took place in Palestine. And that kind of brought the Palestinian community together um, in CMU. And we thought it was very important to, to talk about this issue or these kinds of issues because we realized that the non-Palestinian community is not aware of the events that take place in Palestine, both historical and current. And so we decided to start the Palestinian Club because we wanted to spread awareness about Palestinian rights and we wanted to commemorate Palestinian culture and tradition and make sure that it stays alive in our community. And before we talk about Al-Nakba and everything leading up to it, could you also just explain what that word means in Arabic? So Al-Nakba means catastrophe. Like the direct translation to English means catastrophe. And that is because many Palestinians were displaced, forcefully displaced, um, especially in 1948. But there were many events that led up to uh, the displacement um, of Palestinians in 1948, which is why 1948 is known as the catastrophe. Okay, let's dive into that context a little bit of what events led up to Al-Nakba in 1948. Could you explain what was going on in the region at that time and what were the driving factors that were leading to this boiling point? Yeah, so before 1948, there was was World War I happening and specifically on the 31st of October in 1917, the British army won against the German, Ottoman, and Austrian armies in Palestine. So it was in the region. Like I said, the British army won against German, Ottoman, and Austrian armies, and they occupied Palestinian territories afterwards. And two days after the 31st of October, which is the 2nd of November in 1917, the Belfort Declaration took place. Now, I want to clarify, it's called the Belfort Declaration, but really it was actually a letter that was written by the Foreign Secretary, um, Arthur James Belfer, the Foreign Secretary of Britain. And this letter was directed to Lord Rothschild. The, the letter basically said, and like this is directly from the letter, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavor to facilitate the achievement of this object. It's being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may be which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, um, which are the Palestinian people, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. And so this declaration was published a few days afterwards in The Guardian, which is a newspaper in Britain, and it was like commemorated. And I also think it's important to note that when the Belfort Declaration was released or published, Palestinians themselves weren't aware of the Belfort Declaration until later on. But the the actual communities in Britain and the immigrants that later immigrated to Palestine, uh, the Jewish immigrants specifically, they were aware of the Belfort Declaration. Okay, so just to clarify, so before 1917, 
Palestine was, it was a free independent nation. And then as a result of the war between several different nations in the area, the British took control of the area that was Palestine in 1917. Is that correct? Yeah, so Palestine was a recognized country. It was under the control of the Ottoman Empire at the time, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a recognized country. Palestine and Palestinian people were a recognized country. The spoken language in that country was Arabic. They, they had full rights in their land. But then, like I said, after that, when the war took place, and it's actually called the, the Battle of Bir Sabah, the British mandate took control over the region. Um, okay. So yes, to answer your question in short, yes. Okay. The Belfort Declaration was written in 1917. And then what happened from there? In 1917, the Jewish population in Palestine was 3 to 5%. And those um, included Palestinian Jews, people that were trading, and pilgrims. And after that, the Jewish immigration started, which was uh, supported by the British mandate in Palestine. Now, I want to be specific with the dates. On the 11th of September in 1922, the British mandate was agreed on, like to take place. So this was a few years after the Balfour Declaration. And the British mandate agreed to provide protection to the Palestinian people's rights in their homes and their land, while also allowing Jews to immigrate and support their immigration, um, and also granting Jews the Palestinian citizenship. And that was also like stated in the Balfour Declaration that was sent to Lord Rothschild. Over time, more and more Jewish immigrants started to immigrate starting 1920 up until 1948 and afterwards, of course. Okay, so you started to see an influx of Jewish immigrants. And my understanding is that the the aspect of the Balfour Declaration that stated that Palestinians would keep their rights and keep their lands, the real issue is that that started to become disregarded. Is that right? Yes, yes. Okay. Okay, so let's go ahead and discuss Al-Nakba then. Is there anything else leading up to that that is important to cover? So Al-Nakba, like I told you, it's defined by the displacement of Palestinian people during that year or the catastrophe. What led to Al-Nakba was the period after the Balfour Declaration. And so like I guess I'll like go into that a little bit more. Uh, like I said, over time, there were more uh, Jewish immigrants immigrating with the support of the British mandate, right? But then also over time, there were Zionist gangs that were forming, extremist Zionist gangs, and they were be- gaining more and more power. And they were also gaining military support, right? And they started to attack British authorities and they were trying to sabotage them. And that happened between the, ni- the years 1920 and 1948. And they were, again, terrorizing people, specifically the British authorities, to push the British mandate to leave Palestine. And one really big example of those gangs, it's, uh, I, I may be butchering the name, like in terms of my pronunciation, but it's called H- Haganah or Hagana. And that was like a Zionist military organization. At the start, it wasn't an official military organization. 
But one of their biggest attacks took place in a town called Dir Yassin. And it, it was a massacre. There were around 400 people in that town. And around seven, 117 of them were killed. Um, and 40 of them were left injured. So that's like one of the bigger massacres that took place that led to Palestinians kind of leaving their homes to find a safer, safer place to, to live. Hi, listeners. One post-editing note. Aya mentioned that Haganah was responsible for the massacre at Dir Yassin, but it was actually an extremist splinter cell of Haganah that carried out that specific attack. Now, back to our interview. Okay, so to clarify, it sounds like as more and more Jewish people started to immigrate to the area, they also were starting to form their own military groups and then they started to want independence from the British. Is that right? Yeah, so it wasn't obviously all Jewish people. There were groups. There were some immigrants that were welcomed into Palestinian homes, into Palestinian towns and cities, and they, they kind of like lived peacefully with the rest of the Palestinian people through, over, like, over that period of time. But then there were these specific gangs that were forming that were planning attacks on these Palestinian cities or Palestinian towns. Okay. So were they successful in getting rid of the British? Yeah, the British mandate, actually, they announced that they would be leaving in 1947. And then the United Nations decided to partition Palestine so that there was an, is an Israel and a Palestine. A around the time of like their announcement of like the ending of the British mandate, the Haganah or Haganah uh, military organization actually became official. Um, that same organization that massacred like many Palestinian people. And so they became recognized and that actually caused riots amongst Palestinian people. A lot of Palestinian people started to riot and the British mandate lost control of Jerusalem when the Palestinian people started uh, rioting. So They lost control of Jerusalem, Nablus, Nablus and Khalil. These are all Palestinian cities. Khalil, also known as Hebron. Yeah, so the Palestinian riots started in 1947 as a result of the United Nations deciding to partition Palestine into two nations. Also, Haganah became, becoming a, um, an official military organization in the region. Okay, and you know, as far as that partitioning goes, can you talk a little bit about the population breakdown versus the way that partitioning of the land ended up breaking down? Because my understanding is that that was the that was one of the main reasons why Palestinians were so upset is because that division of the land was not what they considered to be fair or equal. Is that right? Yes, so um, I don't exactly have exact numbers, but the way that they decided to partition the land was a very, like uh, a small area of the land was given to Palestinian people, considering the large population of Palestinian people in Palestine, not to mention many of those Palestinian people being displaced from their homes to which they have a legal right to. So that angered many Palestinians and even to this day, Um, actually, one of the, the Palestinian symbols is the key, and it basically represents like a, a, a Palestinian owner 
of like a specific land or home carrying their key kind of to claim their right to return. And so again, I don't exactly have exact numbers, but from my knowledge on that, it's that the way that the land was divided was unfair relative to the population of Palestinian people in the region. Okay, so that division occurred in 1947. And then is that when we move into the period that is considered al-Nakba in 1948? Yeah. One thing that I also want to mention before I get into that is that when the, the numbers of Jewish immigrants increased, the British mandate decided to limit the immigration or like regulate it. And at that point, those like extremist activities were rising against the British mandate, like I said. That was the result of the British mandate limiting the number of immigrants arriving in Palestine because they saw that Palestinian people were losing their rights to their homes in the region. In 1948, around 57,000 Palestinians were forcefully displaced from their homes starting from 1947 until 1948. Uh, So this was during the period or during the year of Al-Nakba. And after that, what happened was Palestine or the remaining area that was considered Palestine. So after after Israel was established in 1948, um, the remaining Palestinian territories were ruled by Egypt and Jordan, as well as Israel. Israel started to provide their own citizenship, while um, Jordan took control of the West Bank. And they provided the people that lived in the West Bank and the people that immigrated to Jordan, the Jordanian citizenship. Whereas Egypt uh, took control of Gaza and they did not provide the citizenship. Those people don't have um, any form of like actual, they don't actually have a passport. They just have like a legal document that states that they are from Palestinian territories. Okay, so a lot of people were left, it sounds like not only homeless, but also without a nationality to claim. Is that right? Yes. Yes. My family was one of the families that managed to get the uh, the Jordanian passport because my family lived in the West Bank. Personally, my family wasn't displaced in 1948. We were displaced in 1967, which is like another really big event that took place in Palestine. But basically, like there's there there are many families such as my own that ended up receiving a Jordanian citizenship, but then there are many other families that are from Gaza or other regions that didn't have any um, nationality to claim, as you said. Um, and so those people walk around with um, what we call in Arabic, a wathiqa, like I said, like a legal document that entails that they are from Palestinian territories. So I I do want to go back for just a minute. If it's okay, I want to talk more about displacement and what that means. Can you kind of explain what was the displacement? What did that actually mean? What did that look like for families? And how is it enforced? So with the example of Haganah attacking or Haganah attacking Dir Yassin, which is a Palestinian town, not only did they massacre the Palestinians living in that town, but they also demolished their homes. They burned them down. And whatever Palestinians that remained in that town, they didn't really have a home to go back to. And so the only thing that they could do was leave. And so displacement is a result of war. 
Palestinians having to leave to find a safer place to stay. And it's also the result of the systematic demolition of Palestinian towns and villages. Now, taking my grandmother as an example, who was forcefully displaced in 1967, she was basically kicked out of her home by soldiers during the time of the war in that year. And they were basically uh, forced to leave the borders of Palestine and, and travel across to the Jordanian borders. So displacement, again, is the result of war and systematic demolition of Palestinian towns and villages. So in 1948, when that mass um, displacement was occurring, was that basically the ultimatum that people faced was that if you if you're not going to leave your town, then we're going to force you out of your town by demolition of your home. And if not that, then through violence, is that what people were facing at that time? Yes, unfortunately, that is what people were facing at that time. Now, this still happens even today, for example, Currently, there's um, Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood in Jerusalem, and many of those uh, people that live in that neighborhood are facing forceful evictions, you can call it, but in reality, it's just displacement because they're essentially trying to kick them out of their homes. There's also an, um, a few other towns in Palestine that are facing the same exact situation where they get like an eviction notice you have to leave by this date or we're going to demolish your house and so palestinians are forced to leave their homes so that they don't get demolished with their homes that was the case before 1948 during 1948 and even now so as far as the displacement goes do you know about how many people were displaced around the time of al-nakba and if you don't know the exact number, that's okay. So between 1947 and 1948, specifically those two years, around 57,000 Palestinians were displaced. But over the span of time between like Belfort Declaration and 1948, different sources say different things. But the general consensus is that 750,000 Palestinians were displaced. Okay. And yeah, do you happen to know now how many people are considered displaced or part of the diaspora versus how many Palestinians live in Palestine now? Unfortunately, I don't have that number. But what I do, what I can say is that there is a large, really large Palestinian diaspora everywhere in the world. Like wherever you go, you'll find a Palestinian community. And the largest community is found in Jordan, actually. If we want to talk like modern day, the Palestinian diaspora is so large in every single community that it's actually so easy to find like on social media. Like you'll have Facebook groups that form subgroups within the main Facebook group that will tell you like, oh, I'm Palestinian that lives in Qatar, for example, and I am from this specific town. And then you'll find like hundreds of people from that specific town. So there's a lot of people that have been displaced. Now, specifically between like the Belfort Declaration 1917 and 1948, like I said, there were 750,000 to 800,000 Palestinians that were uh, displaced and around 165,000 were remaining in Palestine. That was like, like compared to what we were, it is not a large number of people. Yeah, even after the displacement, many Palestinians tried to return. But like I said, we were unsuccessful in returning. 
So yeah, let, let's move into how this is still important in modern times. Obviously, displacement is still going on, but how do people remember Al-Nakba as a moment in history? And how does that still impact Palestinians um, around the world? Overall, like the whole like general Palestinian community all around the world, we always talk about Nakba. And I know my own parents, they would instill in me the year 1948 and the other really big date or the really big uh, incident that took place, which is Annexa, which took place in 1967. That's also like a really important date to remember. And so these events, they're our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents, they always remind this generation and the future generations, inshallah, we always like, we try to remember these dates. We try to remember what happened, details of what happened. Like personally, we started, for example, the Palestinian club and CMUQ for that reason, to remember these important events, because unfortunately, not a lot of people are aware of them, or you get one side of the story, but not the other. And so it's again always important to remember what's happening because that also allows us to understand the current situation what's happening now in palestine and whenever like new laws or amendments are made that pertain to palestine and palestinians we're always aware of it we're always we always try to understand where those came from what resulted in these like new laws to take place and like you said like how this how nakba impacted like palestinians to this day, we are displaced. And to this day, a lot of us don't actually carry any nationality. We're kind of in this like limbo where like we don't know where exactly we belong, unfortunately. Or like a lot of us would carry like a, like a, another citizenship that we actually like or another like nationality, but we're actually not from that country, for example. I'm someone that grew up around like a, a very diverse community of people. Um, and obviously, like, I've adopted many things from these different cultures, but through remembering the events in Al-Nakba and Al-Naksa and everything in between and everything afterwards, that helps me um, remember who I am as a Palestinian, what's important to me as a Palestinian. Okay, so those dates have really become, and those events have really become part of the Palestinian identity at this point. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. And what is something that you want listeners to take away from hearing this story? I would say the most important thing is to actively listen to people with stories like mine, for example, like my family stories. Like I said, like media is incredibly biased in so many different regions in the world. Like even where I live, you might not get the other side of the story. And so I guess something that I would want listeners to always consider is the other point of view and to not be completely um, closed off from other perspectives because it can really change a narrative. That is absolutely true. And um, even when it's hard to face opinions and ideas that are contrary to your own ideas, I still think it's so important because you might have your mind opened up in a way where, you know, you learn that maybe things that you always believed to be true might not be 100% factual um, or might be a little bit biased. So I, I couldn't agree more with that point. Definitely, yeah. Related to the current displacements that are happening 
is there anything that you would want listeners to to do or to know or understand because if i'm being honest i don't hear a whole lot of news coverage about it and when it does occur and i do hear about it it seems like it paints a picture that it's not really that bad or that there's some kind of justification for it so i guess what what would you want people to understand about the displacements that are currently going on Unfortunately, the Palestinian people that reside in Palestine right now that are forcing these displacements, they don't have an outlet. Their only outlets are their own social media accounts, their own like personal social media accounts. There is no like news channel that directly reports everything that's going on in great detail. You know, there's no there's no representation. And so Palestinians that live in Palestine, they represent themselves. They use their own voices. They use their own accounts to whether it be on Instagram, Facebook, all of those kinds of things. Um, They use their own accounts to kind of deliver news about what's going on with them. And so personally, I realize that the best sources of information about what's currently happening are directly from those people following their stories specifically. For example, the displacement that the the displacements that are currently or like the the threats of displacement that are currently taking place in Sheikh Jarrah, we wouldn't have known about them if um, a few a few people that are my age and your age, those people directly talked to the audience, to their followers, and then those followers sharing that information. And like one thing that I also urge listeners to do is is actually share whatever information they receive. Obviously, fact check, make sure that it's actually true and that it's happening, but also sharing it, even if it's for a very small audience, because that small audience really does make a difference. Palestinians didn't have as loud of a voice as we did over this past year because so many people started to share our story or the stories of the Palestinians that are facing evictions and the displacement in Palestine currently. So it's really important to actually find those um, sources and share them. Yeah, that that's really good advice. It's not something that, you know, comes to the forefront of our news cycle or our social media channels just in general. But I think your point about just being more aware and being more informed is kind of the first step, right? Like if you if you don't know what's going on, then of course nothing will ever change. So I think that awareness is really important. Yeah, 100%. Is there anything else you want to share with the audience? I guess I just want to say that this is only part of the story. There's obviously so much more to it. We've only looked at one specific date or like two specific dates, aka 1917 and 1948, and then some things that happened in between. And that was only like a a very short summary of what happened. Um, 1967, Annexa, or what it's in Arabic, it's in like the direct translation to English, it's called setback. That was also a really important date that impacted Palestinian lives because it also resulted in the in the forceful displacement of so many more Palestinians. I think listening to us today is a really good start, but also looking more into it is really, really important. And I guess like one place to start is 1967 for those who are interested. Definitely. And I think that 
you know, this being such a deep, complex conflict and situation, I think a lot of people maybe hear about it and they say like, okay, you know, I know that there's been so much going on for such a long period of time that I don't even want to get into it. And it's not wrong to like ask for help, like as to like a starting point. You 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 said it yourself. It's it's complex. And sometimes sometimes people don't know where to start, including myself, you know, like growing up, I never knew where to start, where to start learning about the history as a Palestinian, right? And so asking around even obviously reliable sources or people that do have some expertise in, in this um, part of history, it's not wrong to ask for advice on where to start looking and what to start reading about. Aya, thank you so much for joining me for this episode and for sharing some of your family's history with listeners. It's been incredibly enlightening and this is such an important conversation and um, it's it's really been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. I was I'm so happy that I was able to share some form of Palestinian perspective. Absolutely. Thank you.